Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. Chelmsford 1920 hosts early radio tests from reading railway timetables to gala operatics. But it's too successful. The nation loves it. But the military don't. They report interference. They can't land their planes. All they hear is operatic warbling. All radio broadcasts are banned in late 1920. Yet amateur radio hams ask the government to reconsider. Will they? Will radio have a future? Well, if you're in the future, then, uh, well, you know. Spoilers. This time we meet the bright spark who breathes new life down the microphone. British Broadcasting's granddaddy. The name that should be on every presenter's lips and in every listener's ears. The original PPE, Captain Peter Pendleton Eckersley. Here on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Collins. Well, hello, hello. We're back to fighting fitness this week. And thank you for your good wishes. Yes, a little bit poorly last week. So last week was meant to be a mini-sode that somehow grew to be a bit longer than some of our normal length episodes. That's the way it goes with podcasts. So this is the podcast about 100 years of TV and radio. Although right now, it's mostly radio, if I'm honest, because we're telling the story slowly in order. And right now, we're in the early 1920s, and TV is just a glint in John Logie Baird's eye. So, radio it is, for now. This episode, we're looking at Captain Peter Eckersley. Now, if you've not heard of him, then you've only got him to thank for pretty much all broadcasting. It's no biggie. He's arguably the first DJ. He's an influential presenter, engineer, bon viveur. I like to think that he's rival to Arthur Burroughs, who we had a couple of episodes ago. The yin to his yang. If Arthur Burroughs is a straight-laced, kind of BBC Two sort of guy, Eckersley is the all-round entertainer, the BBC One of early broadcasting. Tonight, we have a most marvellous thing that's going to happen. We are going to receive Rome. There may be some jamming. There may be some oscillation. But hang on, CQ. We're just going to receive it now. Later on, we're going to meet John Reith. I think he's BBC Four. And in a few series' time, we'll meet the fun, brilliant, marvellous Hilda Matheson, who I think is BBC Three. But right now, this voice of Eckersley is special. Not just because it's wild and unusual, bizarre, like nothing anyone had ever heard before, but it's also the voice of Britain's first regular broadcast. We'd had Ditcham two years previously with his railways. We've had Melba singing her hello to the world for a £1,000. Arthur Burroughs broadcasting at sea, but these were all one-offs. With Peter Eckersley and the 2MT Rittle station that was thrust upon him, Britain finally gets a regular broadcasting service. Still nine months pre-BBC, a pregnancy by chance. Broadcasting still needs to gestate a little until we get a British broadcasting company. But what brings the captain to the microphone? How does he become the saviour of British broadcasting? Yes, indeed, the Chris Moyles of his day, saviour of Radio 1, my foot. And I think the Chris Evans of his day, because he was planning shows in the pub. And I think he was the Steve Wright of his day, making up characters on the spot, having silly voices, pretending that people are there when they aren't, bringing that gang show feel to the audience, making the silent engineers part of the show as well. It is all there 98 years ago. Now, to find out more, who better to ask than the man who's been chronicling him 
for I don't know how many years, decades. We've shouted about uh, Tim's books on here on this podcast before, especially his new one from Marconi to Melba. Do get that book now. He's a playwright, historian, an author, so much more, a custodian, I would say, of broadcasting's birth story. Hello, Tim Wonder. Thank you for joining us. Oh, good morning. How are you doing? Um, Peter Eckersley. Well, I think the phrase, a life most lived. In 1920s, he was one of the most famous men in Europe, if not the world. He was the man whose work defined the art of radio broadcasting. As the chief engineer of the British Broadcasting Company and then the corporation, he single-handedly led and built the group of engineers that would build the BBC as we know it today. Well, it's great to have Tim on. No one on the planet knows the story of British broadcasting and Eckersley's role in that story better than Tim, apart from maybe Eckersley himself, although even then I'm not entirely sure. Eckersley is such a vivacious character, it'd be great to get him on the show. He's got anecdotes galore. I would love to see Peter Eckersley on on Parkinson. Well, it's not too late. So let's, let's bring Parkinson out of uh, retirement, shall we? You'll, you'll forgive the awful impression, Alistair McGowan, obviously, un- unavailable. We do like to reference and pastiche various uh, classic shows from the history of broadcasting to showcase the programmes that have been influenced by these early pioneers. Let's, let's welcome one of these pioneers now, my next guest, the so-called star of the show. Please welcome Captain Peter Eckersley. <laughs> The so-called star. <laughs> Not, uh, I think it's perfectly rightly called. I've always thought so. So, Captain Eckersley, you're, you're a man of great note, first chief engineer of the BBC, you're a great showman. Before we get to the February 1922, where, where did that first love of wireless come from? My brother Tom, he was standing on the porch, winding a very black tube with very green wire. And I looked at it and I felt it and I said, what are you doing? Oh, he said, this is wireless. His older brother, Tom Eckersley, was one of the greatest physicists of his time. I mean, he basically defined the ionosphere and ionospheric reflection, the way radio waves travel, which sounds boring today, but that allowed us to develop radar in 1937, which saved the nation. So Tom was uh, seven years, eight years older than Peter, but gave him a love of the mysteries of the ether of radio. And from that moment, and particularly when I, when I went up into the schoolroom above and uh, found, oh, polished brass balls with great sparks tearing between them, when I saw lovely, acute ebonite instruments with needles flowing gently over a scale, the whole tactile feeling of that lovely thing so engrossed me that I said, well, I must be a wireless engineer. And lucky for us that he did. But as a young man, radio was a hobby, not a jobby. And with the war, what were Eckersley's prospects? Tim Wonder. Eckersley wanted to volunteer, he wanted to fly, he was determined to become a fighter pilot. Sadly, at the interview for Peter, he happened to let on that he knew all about radio. So in 1917, they pulled together a team at Brooklands, the uh, motor racing circuit, uh, to develop this thing called radio telephony speech radio and what they did at brooklands later at joyce green and then at biggin hill that's going to lead that's the the spark that sets the world alight so that team during the war would form the basis of the team that he'd later take to essex for that radio station to mt rittle and then later still to the bbc's first engineering department imagine a crack squad like uh, diy sos meets the repair shop okay it's like a team on the apprentice only with talent and humility and their task well at this point 
It's to bring radio to planes, to transmit speech, but also to build radios that didn't weigh more than the plane itself. Within nine months, they have a system of radio that is lightweight, doesn't require the huge aerial, 400 feet of wire being towed behind you, and it means you can hear speech from ground to air, air to ground, and amazingly from air to air in 1917. This is just a quantum leap in technology. That kit was first used over the Battle of Passchendaele, alas too late in the war to make much of a difference, but still, it was too good a technological leap to leave in the battlefields. Eckersley and his team are demobbed, they come out of uniform and they join, not a surprise, the Marconi Company, the largest uh, wireless company in the world, because there is a new market. Civilian aviation is starting. And it's quite incredible, by the end of 1919, you can get on a commercial airliner, still a biplane, four engines, an ex-converted uh, Hanley Page bombers, and you can fly all across Europe. And what they need in 1919 is reliable ground-to-air and air-to-ground communication. They also need direction finding, weather reporting, landing instructions, and actually air traffic control, as we know it today. All that Eckersley's team do within a year. To start off with, they work out of Croydon Aerodrome, but then they're offered a corner of Marconi House at the Strand, where Arthur Burroughs works in the publicity department. Eckersley's team of experimenters is offered a corner of Captain Round's workshop. You'll remember Captain Round, Chelmsford's chief engineer from a couple of episodes ago, chomping on a Churchillian cigar, designer extraordinaire of transmitters and microphones. But Eckersley takes one look at that bit of Captain Round's workshop and says, no, thank you. You can't design an airport, which is what they're trying to do, from the middle of London, really. So instead, they're offered a small old army hut a couple of miles from Marconi's New Street Works in Chelmsford, in a little village called Rittle. You can build an airport, apparently, from a muddy hut in a sleepy Essex village. And they do. They are the best engineers in the world. Eckersley's team build the first international airport at Croydon. They put in air traffic control. They put in uh, weather reports. And they build this series of equipment called the AD series. The AD1 transmitter, AD2 receiver, AD3 transmitter receiver. And they are just way ahead of the time there's nothing else like in the world and they allow this this embryonic industry to become what it is today it's incredible this would be it would be a story in itself to build an, an airport from a hut and yet that's just sort of the start of things isn't it so that is uh, just that is really just the start of this this amazing man and his amazing and his team they took with them Technically, Eckersley had a boss, Mr. R.D. Bangay, who headed up the designs development at Rittle. But in practice, Mr. Bangay, he was a company man, a Marconi veteran, more often found at the main factory in Chelmsford, being lauded and feeling important and near retirement. He had no time, really, for his annoying, intelligent and young team. No intention of closing out his career in a hut in a muddy field. And it wasn't a glamorous hut either. There was no running water when they all first got there. They made a dugout toilet in the ground at the end of the hut. Noel Ashbridge, he was Eckersley's number two. Ashbridge requested toilet paper for his own number two. And the team's jokey reply, they left him some sandpaper. Yep, they were pranksters and they didn't quite play by the rules. Eckersley, in fact, he popped in and out of the Chelmsford Works a few miles away. But yeah, as Ditchman Round were reading out railway timetables in 1920, Eckersley might breeze in and walk away with a few souvenirs. Round would often know if the Riddle team had been in, the parts would go missing. So we've just had the big Melba centenary just That's recently. Right. Um, but am I right in thinking Eckersley wasn't necessarily a fan of the broadcast as such? On one hand, he loved it because... 
He clamped headphones to his ears. He was absolutely, and he writes in his biography in 41, that he was transfixed. If you got a wireless set as an amateur, which had never done more than go, pa 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 and then suddenly you heard a voice or even music. I mean, it was fascinating. However, when Chelmsford was on air, Rittle had to stop work. Hmm. And indeed, everything they built at Croydon and all the marine stations in Northern Europe couldn't operate because the Chelmsford signal just swamped them, flattened them. Post-Melba, of course, the government ban radio itself, as we've heard on the previous few episodes. Marconi's was fulfilling orders for 200 radio sets for China, but not allowed to use any of them themselves. Of course, it didn't stop everybody. The summer of 1921, the Derby result was actually broadcast from a van, rather secretly, yet the radio hams were getting restless. And there were a few signals as well from other freer countries. Holland, for example. The Hague had their very own powerful output of radio concerts, even directed towards the UK, with a British concert every Sunday. The idea belonged to Hanso Idzerda. 1921, he was actually asking listeners for their financial support. He even had a catchphrase. Show your goodwill, else the ether will become still. Which I guess is as good a time as any to say, if you fancy supporting this podcast, patreon.com slash Paul Carenza has perks, advance extracts of things that I'm writing or recording, patron-only newsletter, exclusive podcast episodes and videos and things like that. This month, delighted to welcome three new Patreon subscribers, Chris and Andrew and Mel. Thank you to you three. I've de-surnamed you all for now. I may thank you again in future episodes if you agree to drop anonymity. But thank you, Chris. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Mel. By supporting this podcast regularly, you are keeping us pumping out audio and we doff our cap to you. If you'd rather something a bit less monthly, a bit less regular, uh, there's coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash Paul Carenza. And that tips me the price of a cup of coffee. It all keeps us in microphones and parts. So like Eckersley, we don't have to go and steal them from somewhere else. And hey, to quote Hanzo Idzerda from the Hague station, Show your goodwill, else the ether may become still. So that sounded a bit like a threat. Wasn't meant to. Well, the government may have said close down, but the amateur radio hams have had a taste of broadcasting with Nellie Melba, Ditcham's train times and the odd report on the billiards results. To lose all that now? Intolerable. America has this radio boom going on. I mean, let's look at what was actually happening in 1921. In August of 21, you've got the first radio baseball game broadcast. That's the Pirates versus Phillies game broadcast over Westinghouse, KDKA in Pittsburgh. One of the first radio stations in the world. And also that year, the first religious radio broadcast. Also heard on KDKA AM in Pittsburgh. In late 1920, the US have only one radio station, but by late 1921, they've got 10 new radio stations a month. By early 1922, they've got nearly a hundred new radio stations a month. This is quite a boom, isn't it? The wild west of wireless is being farmed and harvested and other agricultural metaphors I haven't quite worked out. Meanwhile, silent Britain watches on, jealous, but also we were looking at how we would do it differently. And the postmaster general, on whom be everlasting peace, uh, he uh, realised that we couldn't have um, such a thing as this without committed judgment and serious consideration. But somehow or another, there was um, an idea among the amateurs. Who are amateurs? They're called hams. They're the people who wound coils and uh, drilled ebonite and uh, did all the happy things that you do do with valves and wireless sets. 
and they petitioned the then Postmaster General that they might have a station so that uh, they could have a constant source to, against which to calibrate their receivers. And um, the result of this, peti uh, this petition was, uh, very naturally, it was turned down. They lobby, they petition, they generally make Mr. Calloway's life a complete misery through 921, including a, a petition signed by 63,000 people kicking on the doors of Westminster. But under the influence of shock tactics, the preparation of another petition, eventually it was decided that there should be a station for these amateurs. He relents. He's seen what's happened in America where broadcasting has now exploded. And he comes back to the Marconi company and goes, OK, do this thing called broadcasting. Just do it. Just keep them off my back. And the Marconi company turn around and go, yeah, we don't want to do it. Uh, we've sent all of the equipment around and ditch from back in Ballybunion and the west coast of Cork. However, the Marconi company weren't adverse to publicity. And publicity, of course, was Arthur Burroughs' department. He didn't have the time, particularly, or the staff. He had 17 people under him, but he did have enthusiasm and knowledge. And as we know from previously on this podcast, you know, he DJed at sea. He'd written about a future for radio. So people like an Arthur Burroughs, who presumably is campaigning and wanting to get this radio thing off the ground, and yet the job somehow lands at Eckersley's desk, doesn't it? You're absolutely right. And so Arthur Burroughs looks around the company and goes, who in the company knows about speech broadcasting? Mm. Well, over in Riddle, we have this band of pirates who know about it. Maybe they could help us out. I happened to be in the Marconi Company at the time, and um, we inhabited um, a place called Riddle, uh, a hut, long, low hut for the long, low people. And um, we had a wireless transmitter, and we were eventually appointed by the Radio Society of Great Britain to do this thing called broadcasting. We had no experience of broadcasting, and our equipment was primitive, to say the least of it. That's Noel Ashbridge there, Eckersley's right-hand man. And like him, Ashbridge was to become chief engineer of the BBC after Eckersley. Now, elsewhere on the team, we've got yet another future BBC chief engineer, the delightfully posh Rolls Wynn. I know how thrilling it was to be on the little staff, because, though we probably don't admit it, I think, quite honestly, we did visualise the importance the excitement and the potentiality of this toy we were playing with. That's him there. And then there's Mr Kirk, future head of the BBC Research Department. Basil McClarty, also on the team. He'd become a senior BBC engineer as well. So the basis of future BBC engineering is right here in this hut in the Essex village of Rittle. These engineers were paid a, a tiny bit extra by the Wireless Society of London, just one pound a show for their trouble. So to start off with... Peter Eckersley, he was reluctant to take all this on. A quid wasn't much. This would all be in their spare time. Yes, yet another similarity to podcast today. And Eckersley doesn't like taking orders as well from Arthur Burroughs, especially. I think here starts that mini feud between Arthur Burroughs, you know, the Marconi head of publicity at the Strand. He was escort to Dame Nellie Melba. He was there for Winifred Sayers' singing debut in February 1920. He was the first pirate all-request DJ from a couple of weeks ago. But it was him versus Peter Eckersley, the maverick in Essex. It's head office versus the fringe hut. It's marketeer versus engineer. Two radio visionaries, both with very clear ideas of what this new medium could be. And just because Arthur Burroughs has sent him the job, does Eckersley need to do it? Well, especially with such a long list of regulations. The licence was uh, that it had to transmit, I think, for only a quarter of an hour a week. 
that it had to shut down between every item for three minutes which left very few items and that its power was to be limited to a quarter of a kilowatt well it fell to us at Riddle to do this transmission and we worked out the transmitter and we found that to light or to heat the filaments of the valve light is just as good a word that we uh, needed about a half a kilowatt and as the license said that this had to, the power had to include that which lighted the filaments we are still owing the postmaster general about a quarter of a kilowatt I guess he has a little think about it and goes, well, actually, we have a spare transmitter, which is uh, the, the backup for Croydon Airport. They have to shut down every seven minutes to listen for three minutes in case they're swamping people as did Chelmsford. And they're just going to play records. So they'll just introduce a record, play it, get out. It will allow the amateurs to calibrate the signals. and At least it will keep them off Callaway's back. And so on Valentine's Day, February the 14th, 1922, that's what they do. So here are some actual songs that were lined up for those first broadcasts. And those introductory words were very simple. Here is a gramophone record entitled Kashmir Song by Clara Butt. Here is another gramophone record entitled The Swan. Here is a gramophone record entitled The Angel's Serenade. Here's a gramophone record entitled Il Baccio. Here is another gramophone record entitled Softly Awakes My Heart. And that was the plan, anyway, introductory announcements and records penned and packaged by Arthur Burroughs at Marconi House in the heart of London. But do those records and polished introductions make it to air? We'll find out properly next time. But here's a clue. Eckersley was an unconventional leader, not best at taking orders from authority. Eckersley is an amazing character. He always wore odd socks, sometimes odd shoes. He uh, used to ride a motorbike and sidecar on two wheels because the sidecar tyre was always flat. He had a toothbrush, clean his teeth, brush his eyebrows, comb his hair, brush his suit, clean his shoes brush his trousers and put it in his pocket for tomorrow. Yes, don't forget your toothbrush, Captain Eckersley, which brings to mind a certain someone I think Eckersley has in common. Yes, the Chris Evans of his day, you could say. Don't forget your toothbrush and TFI Tuesday. Why Evans, then? Well, those broadcasts in Rittle, many were planned in the pub, a production technique perfected by Mr Evans in his radio shows a decade or so ago. And although, to begin with, Eckersley is in charge but not on air, when he does take the mic... That willful abandonment of the rules is what he knows will breathe life into this medium. Are the signals okay? No, they're not. Wave your hand if it's all okay. Shut off after seven minutes because the government say so. No waves. I don't think so. No waves at all. He's Kirk. always innovating. Kirk, is that all right in there? Always finding new ways Kirk. to reinvent the uh, no, audio wheel. Here's Noel Ashbridge, Eckersley's right-hand man, and stand-in when Eckersley simply didn't show. Eckersley's programmes are the most extraordinary thing on earth. Those of you who go back as far as that, and after all, an awful lot of you here who don't, will know that, of course, he was the forerunner of some of the radio entertainers who are so successful now. Except, of course, that all his stuff was ad-lib, Whereas, of course, uh, the producers hope that very little of the present-day stuff is ad-lib. Is that all right, Ash? What? I'm blasting. Hello, CQ. I'm blasting. Do you want a blast? 
I've laughed a whole lot. Now, I've worked with Chris Evans quite extensively at Radio 2 Breakfast Show, and I've written for him on TFI Friday and Top Gear, and I can see those parallels. Evans liked and still likes to surprise, keep the audience guessing. I recall at Radio 2 he was eager to play a song twice, if he liked it, in a row. So what that no one else did that? I've chatted on air with Chris probably 50, 60 times, and you never knew where he was going to go next. And yet it always felt inclusive. He made you feel you were the star of the show, that you were making great radio, even if it was a work in progress. And he also knew what Eckersley did, that radio is just about a conversation. He just made it the best possible chat between two people in a room that happened to be being broadcast. And Eckersley did the same. Back in 1922, it was informal, seemingly chaotic, fun to its core, and it was just like you were overhearing the best party your ears had ever been invited to. Now, Eckersley went on to be the BBC's chief engineer for nearly a decade, but like Evans, he'd left the BBC perhaps a bit disillusioned. When he leaves, under somewhat difficult circumstances, he's built a division of over 750 engineers. There are 10 major transmission stations in all the cities. He's put in a regional scheme and 95% of the British population can hear radio strong enough to hear on a crystal set. With the shortwave system Eckersley pioneers, it goes across the world. That's not bad from a little army hut in a partially flooded field in Essex. And it all happens in this incredible 10 years from 1919 to 1929. Eckersley leaves the BBC in 1929, but he's got another 20 years of this mm. amazing life. So Eckersley goes on to be a, a spy for MI5 and MI6 in Nazi Germany and gets mixed up with uh, a certain gentleman called Ian Fleming and Maxwell Knight. But that's a whole new story for another day. Probably saved hundreds of thousands of lives. And uh, in 45, when he, when he left... He wasn't allowed to tell anybody. It's a bit like Enigma and the, uh, you know, Bletchley Park, the number of people who weren't able to tell their closest relatives what they did during the war. It's a heck of a story, isn't it? I know it's been a long one, and we've not even got to the full detail of 2MT Riddle. This one man from air traffic control through broadcast radio to Ian Fleming and the original M. And indeed, next episode, we'll zoom in on those first programmes that Eckersley made in that hut in Riddle in Essex in February 1922. Very few people can change the world, and Peter Pendleton Eckersley did that in the summer of 1922. And as we head towards the centenary of British radio broadcasting the BBC, let us just hope from you and, and Jim Salmon at Emma Top Radio and, and some stuff that we'll be doing in Chelmsford, let's hope that people realise that amazing things happen in little huts. Tim mentioned Jim Salmon at Emma Talk Radio. You can go to emmatock.org, that's E-M-M-A-T-O-C.org, for Jim's fantastic website. It's a tribute to the pioneering origins of Peter Pendleton Eckersley. That pioneer adventure was born in laughter, was nurtured in laughter, and died in laughter. And I want to believe that if only people would see their jobs, if only people would see their lives in terms of its humour, of its excitement, and that a job well done deserves laughter, not the solemnity of the pomp administrator on top of it. If we could only see that the thing that we do is a God-given thing for heaven's sake because it's creative and it's fun and it's exciting, then I think all these certificates, all these rules, all these rather dull regulations might be seen to be unnecessary 
Tim's books on Eckersley, Marconi and broadcasting generally are all recommended, especially his latest, it's a glossy coffee table type book, From Marconi to Melba. The last 35 years and 11 books still entrances me, blows me away and yet today nobody knows his name. Well, we are doing our bit to alter that. And we thank you for, for broadcasting his name for the last uh, four decades or so. Hello, CQ. This is Tuamatok Riddle. Testing and closing down. God bless you all because I can't, is what Eckersley used to say. Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. More where that came from next week on the British Broadcasting Century. As we meet Eckersley's team, we will hear some of those shows. Hello, CQ. Hello, CQ. This is Tuamatok Riddle. We we'll hear all about the pub, the fish and chips, the gin and tonic that inspired, shall we say, those early shows. So maybe next week prepare your own G&T and raise that glass to those early pioneers. As ever, your sharings of this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, MySpace, Fax, Telegram, Carrier Pigeon, Skywriting and Pavement Art are all much appreciated. You tell people they listen. We grow a nice thing here. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at BB Century. Please do rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you found it on and tune your crystal sets in next time as we delve into what this hut in a sleepy Essex village did for the BBC radio and life as we know it. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza, with original music by Will Farmer. Archive material is either in the public domain or nigh on impossible to find who owns the rights. We've had a jolly good try, so if it's you and you want your clips taken down, let us know and we humbly will. What we do know is we are unaffiliated to the BBC, unless they'd like to affiliate, in which case we're all ears. All ears? How would you fit the headphones? Stay informed, educated, entertained and well, and join us next time on the British Broadcasting Century.